This is the Earth Regenerators Podcast. everybody. Nice that you're here. Today we are joined by Rachel Olson, a long-term Earth Regenerators member, and we'll talk about her story and all of the cool projects that she's involved in. Hello, Rachel. Nice to have you here. Hello. It's very wonderful to be here. Thank you so much for asking me to be here, Jacob. Amazing. My first question, who are you? Who am I? Wow, that's quite existential. Um, I am... I am, as you have said, my name is Rachel Olson, and I am alive, awake, alert, and working on becoming enthusiastic. Um, I am here in uh, my little cottage that I am staying in, in Barichara, having just arrived here six days ago, and I am... Kind of well, I guess I could say that I'm um, excited about the fact that I'm entering a new chapter of my life, where I have decided to uh, enroll in the Barichara Ecoversity in its current state of nebulousness. Uh, it, it it is an idea that um, it, that I love that there would be this uh, you know the the core mission of Earth Regenerators is to establish a network of um, bioregional learning centers across the globe. And the prototype of that is happening here in Barichara. And it is, you know, got this name calling it the Barichara Ecoversity. And it's not just Earth Regenerators who are part of this, it's also the Barichara community. There's a community foundation, there are other interested parties. Uh, and there's a lot of folks who are excited about what it can be. And all of that is still in 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 an unformed place. Uh, but uh, I, I was thinking to myself one day, I want to go. I want to be a student. I want to be a fellow of the Barichara Ecoversity. And why not? Why not just say so? So I just was talking to Joe and I said, Joe, I've decided to enroll in the Barichara Ecoversity, and I've created for myself a learning journey that includes um, things that I want to learn in my life to, to grow, but also um, things that I think will serve others as well. And I think I'll probably talk more about that in a bit. But just to say, Joe got what I was trying to do, and he said, well, congratulations, you've just accepted your own application. So, <laughs> so, so that's kind of how it works. And so I, I've created a, a course of study for myself that includes, first and foremost, Spanish, and then what something I'm calling um, applied experiential anthropology, which is just a way of saying paying attention to what's going on around me and learning from the culture and the people that are here, uh, with the idea that um, just being open, not with trying to have 
little personal agenda as possible. You know, I'm not here to get... Could I just pause that for a second to say that I think we have to be really careful as uh, an American person coming, you know, here that I'm not replicating the colonizing impulses of my ancestors, uh, you know, that, that I'm coming um, with, a, with a beginner's mind, with an openness, with a, a willingness to, to receive and, and also to give. So um, that's, that's all part of it. And then the other piece of this is that I'm really interested in communication. I wrote a book it, um, in the course of the last year and a half. I wrote a book about my experiences in Earth Regenerators and what led me to that and the process of awakening to collapse awareness and um, how that I kind of got from there to here and the uh, I might as well just put in a, a plug for the book. It's called <laughs> Finding Ourselves in the Age of Collapse, A Guide to Coping with a Changing Planet. And it's available on Amazon and other booksellers. So please feel free. And just to also a, a added plug that any profits that are made from the sale of this book go to the Earth Regenerators Fund. Um, so anyway, uh, getting back to my my course of study, my, my learning journey, um, the other thing, this is my second trip to Barichara. In the first one, uh, the Earth Regenerators gave me some money to come here, a little stipend, and asked in return that I provide some kind of reflection on what I was doing while I was here. And so I started making little videos with my cell phone of the things that I was experiencing. Um, and I got my own little YouTube channel, which... Get excited. I now have 12 subscribers, so wow. I'm, I'm practically a mogul. I'm very excited about Impressive. this, I know. <laughs> but I enjoyed it so much. I mean, I didn't do it really for anyone else. I just did it for the people who asked me to and because it was, it was fun. But I enjoyed it so much that I decided that I would really like to learn how to do that more and better and more creatively. So that is the other piece of my learning journey is to, uh, I think of myself as a little bit like an embedded correspondent. I'm here watching what's taking shape here in Barichara around the emergence of this and the, and, and the coalescence of this vision of this bioregional learning center that's also a, a spiritual place, that's also a, you know, a, a place where people can be held and supported while they are um, going through this transformative process of being you know, decolonizing their lives and, and all of that. Um, and no one knows exactly what it's going to be but the potential is amazing. So I'm going to try to record that as it emerges through the lens of my own experience. So that is my purpose, I guess you would say, my mission, my purpose uh, for, for being here, and also just to live and um, see what the universe has uh, to offer me. So that's a long answer to who I am. Beautiful. Well, there's already a lot of really exciting stuff to talk about there. However, what I would like to continue with is, how did you get here? When did you decide to transform your life more towards a path of regeneration? When did you come across the concept first? And how did you start to decide to dedicate more and more of your life's time towards that? Yeah, and that's a, it's, it's, it's hard to pinpoint a moment um, because I can... 
as I, as I, as an adult began to really become aware of something being very wrong with, with me and, and how I felt about my life, I realized that it wasn't new. I realized that when I was eight years old, I went to summer camp um, and had this profound experience of connection with nature, which I had not had really before because of the way I, you know, I was raised. My, my family, they were not outdoorsy people, you know, and, um, and, and this real profound sense of connection to, to the land and the lake. And, and I had a real deep spiritual experience for an eight-year-old uh, and didn't, had no idea what to do with it. But it planted some seeds that there was something about, that there was, there was a part of me that was very attuned to the natural world that I didn't know what to do with because when I got back home, you know, I was in school all day. I was, I was being part of what, you know, Tyson Yanka Porter calls the, the domestication process of our civilization and our culture where they purposely sort of try to turn that part of you off because, you know, they're trying to form you into, a, you know, a good little worker drone bee. Um, and so uh, I, I, all of that kind of went underground and was repressed. But throughout my life, there have been moments where I looked around and thought, this really can't be it. The, you know, the, 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 what, what I'm being trained to do with myself, it never, the pieces never really added up. Um, so, but I tried, you know, I tried to different times in my life. I really tried to lean into being, um, a good capitalist, you know, and a, a good contributing member to the, the culture that, that formed me. Um, but I don't think I was ever, you know, I had to really shut off other parts of myself to do that. But anyway, I finally reached a point, um, yeah, probably, hmm late 50s, where my kids were grown, and I was found myself single again, and looking at my life and realizing that I wasn't happy. You know, I had, I had been a, you know, I have, I'm very well educated. I have been in the working world as a career professional woman. I was a United Methodist pastor and uh, clinical chaplain for about 20 years. And then from there, I went into professional nonprofit development and did fundraising and other kinds of organizational development work. And, um, you know, I had a house, my own house that I owned, and I had a car, and I had 401k, and, you know, pension, and all these things that I, you know, we're told we're supposed to want, but I just felt empty and numb and tired and uninspired. I didn't know what to do about it. And it was starting to affect my health. You know, I was maybe drinking a little more than I probably should because I was a, like low grade depression and just like, like, this can't be it. So anyway, um, I began trying to think of like how this took place. It was a, it wasn't, it wasn't linear, you know, it was all these different things happening at once. So I'm trying to, I guess what sent me down the, what what started reconnecting me a little bit to the earth was that I uh, was working. I, I got a job working for a Benedictine monastery that 
part of their mission, part of what they were doing was restoring the native prairie in Wisconsin. So they were taking land that had um, been turned into farmland and was pretty well degraded, and they were restoring it to the native prairie, and they were very involved in trying to um, preserve prairie plant and animal species that were endangered. And so I, my job was to help them organize this and raise funds and, and um, do events. And that got me into the, the idea of restoring land. And then I one day was reading a book. And I, in the book, the author mentioned a place called Findhorn and a community. In, it's in the highlands of Scotland. And when I read that name, Finhorn, it felt like it was like somebody hit me with a cattle prod. I had this jolt of like, you need to know what this is. So I actually put the book down, got up, went to the internet, looked it up, read their website about what Finhorn was, and I was like, I have to go there. And mm. I think that was April, and I went in July. You know, I just took leave. I actually took vacation time I didn't even have. I borrowed ahead against my vacation time at work, and I just I just had to go, and I went to Findhorn and had another profound nature experience. I had a conversation with a thousand year old tree. Um, and that I know sounds probably crazy to some people. It wasn't a, like a normal human conversation, but I had, a, I had a profound interpersonal experience with a thousand year old tree. And then I knew that I could never go back to what I was doing before. It just was this, this real, sea change, cellular change moment where I was like, I, I understood that the earth was alive and that it loved me and that I had been sleeping my whole life to that realization. So I uh, couldn't stay in Scotland at that time. So I came back and started looking at my life and realizing that I needed to find a different way to be and a different way to live. Um, and it was just about that time that uh, COVID hit, and I lost my job. Uh, and 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 just as that was happening, just right before that was happening, um, so so, because, so let me back up for a second. When I got back from Scotland, I started looking for other people out there who might have ideas for how to make changes because it's not obvious how to do that. You know, how do you not drive a car? How do you not own a house? How do you, in the United States where, you know, those are the gold standards of, of you know, adult sovereignty, you know, how do you not do those things? Uh, so I started finding people on the internet and I took a course in um, ecosystem restoration uh, that was uh, sponsored by the Gaia Education and which is connected to Findhorn and the ecosystem restoration camp people and I took their course and what I realized is that it was really fun and cool. And I saw, you know, I was introduced to people like Neil Spackman and um, Alan Featherston and people who are, you know, are kind of uh, John Liu, you know, the, the, the big names in, in, you know, permaculture and, and restore, uh, ecosystem restoration work. And I was deeply inspired and I said, I want to do that. So I, I, but I realized that those opportunities are not heavy on the ground and um, there, there are not a lot of paying jobs out there. It's like, mm -hmm. how do I support myself 
um, you know, all, and, and all the people who are teaching those things, you know, th- they make their money by getting people like me to sign up for the classes, which is yeah. great, except what do you do with that? So I found myself kind of banging my head against all these different walls and not really able to figure out what to do. And, and, I, and I had ideas for maybe traveling, and then it was COVID and I couldn't travel. But anyway, in the meantime, I was on Twitter and I happened to see a post on Twitter uh, this guy was offering a crowd cast, um, an invitation to a crowd cast that he was, he was holding about his journey. And it was the, the theme of it was, you know, what do you do when you cannot find the socioeconomic scaffolding you need to, to, to live the life you really want to live once you realize that you don't want to live the way you were living. I'm like, aha. And he wasn't trying to sell me anything. He was just this guy and he was super accessible and approachable and had this really kind of amazing way of speaking to people because clearly he's one of the smartest people I've ever met. But he talked to me in a way that didn't make me feel stupid. And he wasn't, it wasn't like he was trying to extract anything from me. And I was really impressed by that. So I, I listened to the crowdcast and, and I was, I kind of fell in love in a way with, with the, this vision that, and of course, this is Joe Brewer and uh, Earth Regenerators. I don't even think Earth Regenerators was a thing yet. He, mm-hmm. he was just finishing his book and putting it out there. And I got a, I was, I got a PDF copy. He was just giving it away. Got a PDF of his book um, and read the book. And that was like, oh my God, this is what I was looking for. I mean, it just made all the pieces fit together. It gives me this, this giant historical perspective. And I was like, oh, all the bells and whistles were sounding at that point. And I'm like, this is it. This is what I was looking for. So that's what got me uh, involved with Joe. And that evolved into a learning journey, which I was part of. And I was part of, there was a first cohort of people Mm -hmm. who were studying the book. And and, uh, I I was involved in that. And I had no, and I think there were maybe like 30 of us. I mean, it was, it was a small group. And of course, now I think there's like four, what, 4,000 people around the world. Um, but at the time, it was still kind of new. And um, I've been poking around, rattling around within the different things in Earth Regenerators ever since. I don't have a particular home in Earth Regenerators the way some people do. I, in fact, in the beginning, I just wanted to do everything. Because I was meeting all these incredibly smart people who, who saw the world very much like I did, which was not happening in, in my day-to-day life with the people that in my family who all were thinking, oh, you're having a midlife crisis. Oh, dear. You know, perhaps you need therapy, maybe some antidepressants. You know, how could you be thinking about, you know, leaving your job when you're going to retire in 10 years? And how could you think about selling your your condo? And, how you know, how could you think about those things? That's not mm. That's not normal. Um, so I, I, I found this, I found, I don't know, maybe I think tribe might be an, uh, an inappropriate word now. I don't know if, if that can still be used, but I found I so. the, the people that I felt like I belonged with Yeah. and started having conversations. Um, and they started, Benji Ross started the campfires and then I found myself telling my story and having these conversations with people. And as I was doing that week by week, 
the story began to start telling me in a way. I mean, it began to change me because I could hear myself and I started having more confidence and more like, this is really something. This is really, Mm -hmm. this is really changing me. And that's when I got the idea that I should write the book. And so, yeah, that's, and, and, uh, then other stuff happened, uh, in that time. I, you know, I had lost my job because of COVID. Then I got an invitation to go back to Findhorn to work there for a while. And I did that for a while and that didn't, you know, it's a hard thing when you meet your heroes. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's, um, anyway, I don't want to, I don't want to say anything. Findhorn's an amazing place and, it you know had many good things happen there, but it wasn't a sustainable situation for me working there. And I didn't know what I was going to do. So Joe said, you should come here to Barichara. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, I got nothing else to do. So, uh, <laughs> and the Earth Regenerators Fund was just starting to happen and there happened to be money in it. And because I, you know, it, it seemed a natural Natural that I would gravitate to the fundraising piece since that's what I was doing professionally. So, you know, I sort of plugged into that and was part, and the fund had, you know, Joe came to us and said, there's $5,000 in here, we need to give it away. And so I put in a proposal and said, I would mm-hmm. like to have some money to go to Barichara, and they gave it to me and w- with the idea that I would then, you know, report back. So hence mm-hmm. that that's where the video piece came in that I mentioned earlier, so... So that, and I stayed for for three months. And what I knew then after being in Barichara for three months the first time is that um, if I was going to stay here, I needed to find a way to support myself and be, you know, that Earth Regenerators was not anywhere near in, in ready to be in a position to, to support people. Mm-hmm. And I mean, the, ideally, in the future, the hope is that that will be possible but Mm. at this point it it really wasn't and that's when I got the idea because I was 61 years old and it was spring of this past this past spring and I thought you know what in August which just passed I'm going to be 62 and at 62 I am eligible to begin receiving my pension benefits and my social security I was like I had never thought about, I thought I would never retire um, because truth be told, I couldn't possibly survive on what my benefits are in the U.S. But the one of the lovely things about Colombia, at least at this moment, is that uh, cost of living is such that I can actually live on that quite nicely. So that planted that seed in my head and then I went back to the U.S., and then I tried really, really hard not to have that happen. And I can tell you what came to me in all of that is that when I got back to the U.S. after having spent the better part of a year, first in Scotland and then in Colombia, is I, I came to the realization that there's nowhere to hide from what's happening. There's no magic place where, where I'm going to be different than I am and that I can live um, without having to deal with all the things that piss me off about the world and really, you know, it's kind of heartbreaking how I feel about my my nationality. I, I sometimes describe it as 
I am, I've been breaking up with my national identity. I've been breaking up with my citizenship of the United States because, you know, I've just been so, so horribly disillusioned by how things have evolved within my lifetime and what's happening to the planet within my lifetime. And so I think for, for a while there, I had this idea that I could find a place where I could escape that and I wouldn't have to deal with the anger and the grief and the sadness and the, and the frustration of all of that. And what I recognized is that there is no such place. And I wanted to come back to the United States and stare that stuff in the face and, and not run. I wanted to see if there was a way that I could engage with that in the place that I came from. But the doors didn't open. You know, I went there fully intending to, 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 to stay, but the doors didn't open. All the things that were inviting me were all back here in Barichara. I had people who wanted me to come back. I had a possibility of a life where I could be up close to this amazing thing that's trying to happen with amazing people who are trying to be part of that. Um, I could, you know, continue to learn Spanish, which I muddle away at, but it's important to me to be able to do that. So um, after four months in the U.S. of being of spending a ton of money um, to be someplace I didn't want to be, and you know, I looked at job opportunities, and I, you know, I was offered jobs, but they were jobs I didn't want, and I was like. So I'm going to take a job I don't want to live in a place that I don't feel connected to anymore, that I don't feel is my home and, you know, have to drive a car and have to engage in all this stuff. It's like, I, I might as well not have lived those, that two year period of transformation. I couldn't figure out a way to integrate it. And yet at the same time, all the doors here were just opening, you know, welcome, welcome, welcome. So I, I finally quit fighting it and said, all right, I'm going back. I'm going to retire. And I'm going to go back to Colombia. But retirement, I think, is the wrong word because I'm getting off the hamster wheel. But I feel as if if I'm really going to accomplish what I have in my heart to accomplish, it has to do with believing in myself, being the hero of my own story, and facing all these things um, that need to be faced and also trying to figure out a way to make some money because, <laughs> you know, I, 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 I can survive on, on my pension benefits, but I'd like to have a little bit more liquidity. So anyway, I feel as if I'm probably going to have to work harder than I've ever worked for before because I'm going to be my own boss. And, you know, at this point, my boss is kind of a jerk. So <laughs> self-love, Rachel, self-love. Well, jerk's the wrong word. Tough. You know, mm -hmm. I'm going to have to really be, um, I think, pretty strict with myself to, to, to pull this off. So mm -hmm. this is this is a time of growth. But at the same time, who, who thought that being 62 would be so exciting? Mm. I mean, I feel like this is maybe the best. I mean, I want to preface that because in case my children and my grandchildren hear this that, that besides you guys um what's happening now is this is the the very best time in my life mm. so i'm really happy for you thank, thank you for telling that story you're welcome i would love to zoom in on some of the different stations that you mentioned um, to hear a bit more about it fire away and my first one is 
the Methodist Church. What, what was it? Unitarian Methodist? No. No, United Methodist. United Methodist. Would you like to, uh, the the short the Because short there's history? There's a lot of different yes. American churches, right? Right. That all branch off a little bit into different directions. Why United Methodists? Okay. Well, it, I didn't choose it. It chose me. I didn't grow up in the church. I was baptized by an Episcopal priest at the home of my great-grandmother in Chicopee, Massachusetts in 1960. So, and, and we did, my folks were not church-going people. They were what we call, when I was a pastor, we called them C&Es, Christmas and Easters, you know, <laughs> and mostly because my mother liked to buy us new clothes and dress us up and parade us around in front of people for, you know, Christmas and Easter. That was kind of the thing. Um, so that, uh, well, I'll, I'll stop. By, uh, I will start by saying the, the um, United Methodist Church is uh, distinguishes itself among the v various uh, branches of Protestantism that you find um, in in. The U.S. It actually comes from England. Um, so, so the the main branches uh, out of the Reformation. Okay, the first there was just Christians, and that's the Orthodox. And then they the the Roman Empire came along, and then it split. And then there was the Eastern Church and the Western Church, and the Western Church is the what we consider the Roman Catholic Church. Then the Reformation came, and we had Martin Luther and John Calvin, and they started Lutheranism and. Um, The, the Reformed churches is where you get your Presbyterians and all of that, right? And then in England, we had uh, King Henry VIII, who, you know, started his own church, not really having anything to do with religion and much more to do with power and land and all of that kind of stuff. Um, and so that was the Anglican church. And then in the early 1700s, a guy named John Wesley looked at that and said, this is not what's in the gospel. This has not got nothing to do with Jesus. This has got nothing to do with Christianity. People are not welcome. It's become a social club. So he started a movement called Methodism. And then it eventually came to the, the U.S. And it was really a big founding piece of, of, uh, of like... They'd set up these little churches in the, in the frontiers, in the territories, and that would help civilize. You know, it made it so that it wasn't just the, the, the men. It, was a, it made it safe for, like, women and children to come out and live in the, so that these places could grow. So anyway, it's deeply embedded in the, in the history of the U.S. And at the time that I came to the United Methodist Church, I was having a personal crisis. Uh, I lost my child. My first child died in infancy. And that changed me, and it opened me. I started asking myself big existential questions, and it just so happened that at that time, there were Methodist people around me who made it a point to look after me, and that kind of helped me see that there was something important about being part of a community that would look after you when you can't look after yourself. And uh, eventually, I just... Uh, It took hold, and I became more and more involved in things, and the next thing I knew, I was enrolled in seminary. I didn't want to be a pastor. I wanted to study the Bible. I fell in love with the Bible. The Bible's really cool. So, um, But then I couldn't, couldn't figure out how to make a living doing that, and the, and the people who run the church said, hey, we will pay you to do this, and you can go to school. And I thought, well, I can do this. You know, it's like, I've never preached a sermon. I don't know. Like, They don't have to know that. They'll, you know, you just go and do your best and every, and it was true. I mean, these people were lovely. They took me in and taught me how to, you know, take care of them and 
Um, so I had I had some really good experiences, and then I also had an opportunity to learn how to be a clinical chaplain, which is a sort of a subset where you know you take some special training where you learn how to be present with people to provide emotional and spiritual support when they're going through what may very likely be the very worst moments of their lives, mm-hmm. and that was that was an invaluable. Um, you know, you can't do that without really being very mindful of yourself. Mm. So that training, I kind of wish everybody could have that kind of training because that, that really helped develop me as a better human. So anyway, I did, did, uh, did that, worked for the church until I couldn't anymore because my spiritual identity just kept growing. I mean, in the beginning, it was a great container. The church, the Methodist church provided a a very loving container for that. But as I grew and developed, the container began to feel constricting and I needed more and they were, didn't quite know what to do with that. So we parted company very amicably. So, and that left me to do other things. But I think of everything I do as kind of a ministry, you know, I, I think I'm still pastoring in a way just you know different way of looking at it but that's kind of how I think that's kind of who I am Hmm. are there any specific experiences that you think too often from that time period that you feel like that really changed the kind of person that I am uh, or were like really big learning opportunities for you well, I think, yes, and, and a lot of them were, were not what you would think. I mean, it, 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 there's a chapter in my book about the experiences I had being the first woman pastor in a small community that uh, the pastor who had been there before me was a, was a sociopath, and he um, did some really terrible things and split this little town in half, and then I was sent in. This was my first full-time ministry position out of seminary. The church sent me to this place where I got death threats. Wow. I got hate mail. They'd never had a woman pastor before. And the, and the man who preceded me made it sure, made sure to, you know, convince everyone that this was, this was a sign of the end times, you know, that this, that I was, I was the, and, and, and I was really, I mean, I was young. I didn't know really, this was my first gig. I had a young family, you know, it was, it was pretty scary. When I think back now, it's like, wow, he gave me a lot of power. You know, I was, I was, um, but at the time it was, it was, it was a lot. And um, so I, I had to learn how to, I had to learn a lot about conflict and a lot about people and a lot about um, repressed intergenerational trauma and uh so i spent a lot of time went and took some training with the mennonites who are that's a peace church they do a lot of um conflict resolution work around the world so that i um was very interested in that they they introduced me to restorative justice and justice circles and which has been something that i've uh, continued to be a part of in in different uh, venues over the years so um I learned a lot about the very best of what people can be, and I was up close and personal to some of the absolute worst things that people can be and do. And these are the quote-unquote good people of the community, you know, but they, people, yeah, well, people, what are you going to do? But anyway, those those have been, um, I mean, really tough experiences, but very formative. Mm Mm-hmm. 
So, and I think good preparation for uh, global collapse because <laughs> I mean I, I firmly believe that you know there's a there's a guy named it's Chris Begley and he's a um, he's a professor and he worked for uh, National Geographic but his field of study is collapsed civilizations and he says that you know people come to him all the time and go what survival skills do I need you know to 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 you know live through the zombie apocalypse and he's like he goes it's not what you think it's not going to be like you off by yourself in the woods surviving with your little tribe most people sort of find that idea appealing he's like no we're going to have billions of uprooted refugees trying to survive he says it's going to be it's going to be the number one survival skill you need is the ability to get along with other people. That is that is it. And I would um, also, with that, say the other side of that is kind of comes from Thich Nhat Hanh, who was, um, you know, he was there at the fall of Saigon and uh, was a young monk. And what he was, what he discovered is that one person in amongst a group of people enduring a trauma, uh, one person who can hold on to their center and stay non-anxious can actually have a positive effect on up to a, of a, a thousand other people. So, so my premise, my my theory is that those are the things we really need to know the most. We need to really work hard at uh, developing our inner monk, that that we are able to manage our own emotions really well, so that we can be non-anxious for others um, in in the lifeboat. Um, and then be able to navigate complicated, you know, trauma-infused social situations. And those are the things that we should be teaching and learning. Um, and then, you know, the third piece is that then, you know, co-creation with the earth. So our relationship with the earth. And I think that, that those are, when I think about the Barichara ecoversity, coming back to that, what I would love to see is that, you know, a a big part of the core of that will be inviting people into all three of those um, strands uh, as as we are all looking for. I mean, it's not going to be just about technology and Web three, and you know, it's not and and or even just you know working on the land itself. It's going to be about helping our species evolve. Um, genetically by first evolving behaviorally and then culturally. And that's the place where I feel I have been prepared by life to plug in. So. Amazing. Let's go. Okay. Talking about relations with humans, you said that once you started kind of leaving that regular life path, going more towards the regenerative space and so on, you didn't necessarily get a lot of positive feedback from your friend circle or your family or something like that what was that like for you how did you what's your relationship with them now has yeah well now I'm interesting because <laughs> I've done some things with this and I think also just in the last couple of years that I've really been leaning more and more into the idea that this needs to happen for me um that I think there's been increasing awareness in just in, in the in these the 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 universal field of people. Because um, I, when I first started writing my book about 
um, you know, finding ourselves in the age of collapse, just using those words. I had people like, oh, talk to the hand, you know, they're giving me the, the you know, the fingers crossed like against vampires. But, you know, it got a lot of resistance from people. They didn't, oh, I don't want to talk about that. Oh. But just it, since, since the book's been out, um, the people seem much less freaked out by the title. And now I'm getting more like, oh, yeah, I would like to. And, and like, people starting to get that there's a double meaning in that title. You know, it's not just that, oh, wow, this is where we are. It's also that we are finding who we really are because this is happening. So, and because, and, and it's all based just really on my own experience because I'm finding who I really am because this is happening. And, uh, and so, because here's the thing, I, you know, and I ask people this all the time. Who, if, if you had to introduce yourself to someone and you could not, you know, if you had to talk about yourself and you could not talk about what you do for a living, where you live, what are your hobbies, you know, um, who your connections are, what would you say? Um, we are so identified in those things. And that's been, that's been a big part of this process. And one of the things that's been really hard is like, okay, I mean, I've, I've realized how much, how attached I was Good example. I stopped being a pastor. You know, I, I had a title. I was reverend, you know, and that, you know, some people think it's weird, but, you know, in, in the world in general, that has some weight. That has some, some gravitas. And, um, and I gave that up. And I didn't really realize what I was giving up until I gave it up because I really wanted out. But then I had to recognize that, like, okay, I've been wearing that title and, and, and identifying myself in that way for, for 20 years. Who am I without that title? I mean, I'm still the same person, but it, it changed how people, you know, I didn't always get the last word anymore. You know, I didn't have that same, people didn't save me the seat at the head of the table the way they used to. And that was, that was an adjustment. And each time I let go of some piece of my enculturation, um, it, 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 there's a loss, there's a real, and, and then also this empty space inside of myself is like, what fills that? Who am I if I'm not the professional woman? Who am I if I'm not a participating American citizen? You know, that, that's been an interesting thing because I've been at odds with my own nationality for a while now. And what I've discovered is, A, I can't escape it. It's, it's not going anywhere. I'm going to, I will go to my grave very much an American, United States person. Um, but um, like, who are you if you don't have those things? I mean, just getting rid of my car. I was raised in the second half of the 20th century in the United States of America, and some of that time in Southern California, even, you know, the idea that a car is so key to everything, independence and... Um, just uh, freedom and so and and so just saying goodbye to my car turned out as like and I was I was so happy to get rid of it on one hand because it's a huge burden and it's you know problematic on many levels but recognizing that it left a hole in my self-concept and also the idea that now I got to take the bus and where I come from people who take the bus are usually people who don't have a choice. So I have now aligned myself intentionally with that, and not everybody gets that. 
So, um, so just to say that uh, what in the in the early days of this process, I felt very isolated and I felt kind of wobbly. I because I you know I wondered is there something wrong with me that I'm having this profound sense of awareness of things that other people around me are choosing not to be aware of or choosing not only not not just not to be aware of, but to deny vehemently um and I felt very it was scary and and lonely which is why earth regenerators was such it was my lifeline really I mean that that they helped me that being part of that group um people around the world kind of helped keep me sane mm-hmm. and helped me to continue on this journey because I had some support and people to talk to and um so yeah that's yeah it was it was lonely in in some ways mm-hmm. and continues to be I mean I go places in the U.S. there are still people who are convinced that global warming is a hoax um that it's you know, a liberal plot, whatever. Um, what do you do? Move. You find the others. Yeah, it's like you move to Colombia, <laughs> <laughs> where I'm sure there are also people here who are, you know, I mean, it's everywhere. It's not a national thing. It's yeah. a, it's a, an awareness piece that you can't you can't regulate in other people. Yeah. Beautiful. Well, we've actually gone exactly to the point where I would have continued Earth Regenerators. And I think that a lot of people are interested to hear some of the stories from that first study group when when everything started out. Are there any particular memories that you have from that time that stick out to you? Or if you want, just convey a sense of what what did it feel like to be part of that group in the beginning? Oh, I felt like an idiot. Um because um well first of all i mean one of the things i absolutely love about joe is for you know because i consider him to to really be truly a, a, a an amazing brilliant human um exceptional in that way um is he he's always been really good about not beating me over the head with how much smarter he is than i am you know and and i could talk to him and he would welcome me into this vision and i would always feel edified by that but not everybody who came in the beginning was able to really do that. So I think Earth Regenerators really attracted a lot of highly academic folks. In, really? Yeah, the okay. people who, who, who are very... Um, there are a lot of them wanting to escape academia, but having been formed through that process of how to think and how to act and how to treat people... I mean, we all do this. We bring... Anytime you come into a group of people, especially if they're people you don't know, so you're already kind of anxious. So you and and, and um, in unfamiliar territory. So we bring the things that have given us a sense of security in the past. So if you are an expert, and I'm making little air quotes here, if you are an expert in something, if you're in a room full of other people and you feel unsure of yourself and someone's sort of poking at you or you're feeling a little triggered, what are you going to do? You're going to armor up with those things like, I'm part of this group and I have this credential and da 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 and, you know, using the $50 words for things. And um, 
So I was super impressed by these folks, but also really intimidated. And I had the worst case of FOMO. So like anytime anybody wanted to do something, I felt like I had to be there because I was going to miss something. And I was desperate to kind of find where I could fit in. But I knew I wasn't on, on I wasn't that kind of a person. I'm not an expert in that way. I'm not a and I don't have a technical expertise. My my area of expertise has to do with spirituality and theology and uh, human interaction and uh, emotional and spiritual support of people in, in, in trauma and things like that. And then, you know, all the other things that I've learned along the way about organizational development and, and that sort of thing. But um, I wasn't sure how that was going to plug in because in the beginning it just seemed like a lot of really smart heavy hitter types who were coming to the group and everybody was sort of I think everybody felt the same way deep down I think we're all really trying to find a place to connect and a way to connect but we were all bringing all this baggage from what we where we came from and it was really hard to get out from around that in 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 the beginning for me what helped shift that was the campfires because the campfires were were specifically set up they were modeled after the you know what Tyson Young Porter described as the as the yarns the aboriginal yarns and they aren't exactly that but they were modeled very respectfully out of this idea that that conversations there's you know that what we would have called in the church sacred conversations or holy conversations that when we talk to each other there's something that happens that's not about the content it's about although the exchange of information is helpful but it, 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 there's, there's an experiential piece that changes everybody who takes part in it. So anyway, um, the campfires were where I started to hear, have a space to hear my own voice and begin to see that what I was holding had value, um, just maybe not the way that people were conditioned to look at value. So, so the idea that there, that there's a spiritual piece to this and, and, uh, and an interpersonal piece to this, that's, that, um, you know, goes beyond the ability to, um, map ecosystems and, and, uh, restore water tables and, you know, I'm, I'm such an idiot when it comes to that stuff. I love that people are doing it. I love to go out to the Bio Parque and pull grass, but I don't know anything about any of this stuff. Um, and uh, I'm at a time in my life where, you know, it's not going to be a lot of heavy ditch digging in my future. I just, that's not going to be my role. So, um, so yeah, the early days were, I was just really intimidated. I felt like a little mouse in the corner and um, trying to figure out how to connect. And, and it was, it was, it, it's always been this very fluid space people have come and gone people have struggled um, because it, so for me what I always want to do is is ask people when when we gather you know is it possible for us to to examine our own unexamined assumptions about why we're here is it possible for us to take a step back in the kind of fishbowl kind of concept and look at how we're engaging how do you feel right now 
Why are you choosing to engage in this way as opposed to this way? Why, why are we, you know, what are we assuming is right in all of this? And are we sure that we're all assuming the same things? Because we aren't. And yet many people come to these, um, these, these gatherings assuming that we're all having, you know, because we come from different places, different generations, different backgrounds. It's, um, so we aren't always um, in, in agreement. Um, and then also to kind of look at what happens to us when we get triggered, when we, and because what I've seen is that like, if one person kind of armors up, then everybody armors up because, you know, it's not safe anymore to, to be vulnerable. And I think that's probably a really key word is that one of the things I've noticed over time is that people in earth regenerators who have kind of stuck it out are learning to be more, more vulnerable, more open. I think there have been a few kind of failed experiments at, at governance and trying to order things um, that have, you know, left some people feeling really kind of confused because, you know, this, this, this technique has worked everywhere in the, that I've ever been, but it's not working here. Why is that? Why am I getting all this resistance? And, and so anyway, just trying to encourage us to, to look at, it's not, always the outcomes of the actual thing we're trying to do, the work group that we're in trying to accomplish. It's not always what we're doing, it's how we're doing it and why and how we got there and what can we learn about ourselves and each other and our culture and and who are we if we don't do that? I mean, who are we? You know, if I have a, you know, a PhD and blah, 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 and I show up to some work group, who am I if I don't wear that hat? Can I show up, especially if someone starts pushing at me and I feel, you know, a little bit intimidated? Can I show up and, and not, you know, whack people over the head with my expertise and my, my credentials and all of that? So anyway, and, I, and I'm not picking on anybody in particular. And I've definitely had my own moments of being that person. And then I, you know, walk away and think, oh, crap, <laughs> I did it again. We're learning. We're learning. We're learning. And, and I can see an evolution. I mean, I think that's, and, and one of the things that I think those of us who have been around and have stayed sort of closer to the center, because I've, you know, been in and out, but those of us who have, have been around f from the early days and have stayed fairly close to the center, um, is we, we provide kind of what I would say is kind of an institutional memory. So, mm -hmm. you know, we can, and I think that's, that's important. You need people who can say, hey, um, you know, this is what we did before, and this is what happened, and maybe let's not do that quite the same way again. Let's mm. let's let's tweak it and try something else. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Are there any specific projects that you've been involved with a lot? I think that your governance fund is something that you were participating in a bit more actively for a while, right? Yeah, I'm I'm really bad at this stuff. <laughs> you know, here's the thing: for a lot of my life, I was paid to do certain things that I think really in my heart of hearts I didn't love, but that was my job. And there were parts of my job I did love and parts of my job I didn't love. I've never really been a process person. Even though I've studied it and I know what it is, I've never been that good at it. And what I've discovered um, is that really I'm kind of a startup person. I like the creative aspects of a new idea. I love getting people together and getting excited about possibilities. My two favorite words in every language are what if. 
And, you know, you get a few people together and you start getting a what if, and the next thing you know, it's like, ooh, this is possible. Um, and and, and I'm, I think I've, I've recognized that once we get that, the idea sort of articulated and up to a place where, where something can happen with it, it can start to materialize, that's where I need to, to check out and let other people do the process pieces because I, I find that um, I have just, um, I just, it's just not, I don't enjoy it. And mm. I feel like at this point I shouldn't have to do things I don't enjoy because nobody's paying me. So, <laughs> and that sounds, I know that sounds kind of spoiled and rotten, but, and, and um, I, I'm not opposed to seeing things through, but I also recognize that there are other people who are way better at that stuff than I am. And um, they should do it. So, Everybody has their role to play. So, so that what I'm saying is, I've been part of a lot of different things, but I've also kind of ducked out when it got to the point where mm. the process stuff started really happening. So, governance is—I I know it's very, very important—and we, it, it's, it's been a core kind of um, growing edge for Earth Regenerators to figure out like who does how do we decide who decides how do we not be a cult of personality around Joe Brewer even though you know he has a really important role in all of this and but but how you know who are we beyond that um and so and this has continued I think to to motivate us but also elude us a little bit as we we play with it because the thing is, we all bring things we're not aware of about what we think is right based on how we've been formed. And my, my, my premise all along has been, I think we need to undo before we do or do those things concurrently. I think we need to be really aware because if not, we're just going to keep replicating the same models over and over. We can call them other things and we can, you know, we can... Um, think we're doing something really different but what I've seen is it's really a struggle to get past some of that stuff and I um, find that I, I get sort of frustrated and um, then I'm not that fun to work with so everybody has their part to play yes exactly so so, so I, I, yeah so I've um, I, I gravitated to the fundraising piece of some time ago Joe uh, put out a um, a request for people who wanted to be part of fundraising. And, and what I was envisioning at that time was, first of all, it's something I know something about, at least traditional fundraising. I don't know that much about regenerative fundraising, but my thought is, wouldn't it be cool to help traditional fundraising evolve? You know, so, um, but what I had really got me into it is that I wanted, I've been very much enamored with the, the um, bioregional catalysts, this idea of, planting weavers and that and supporting weavers and uh, making it so that there would even be like a vocational track for people who gravitate to this kind of work that would allow them to to learn and grow from each other and support each other and to you know benefit from the from you know the the experts you know people who have who have been successful at doing this kind of stuff and inspiring each other and I and so I, I loved the idea that maybe we could help raise some funds to to help promote those people who are trying to do this and being hindered by the fact that they they can't support themselves 
So that's what got me started in that. And of course, it didn't go that way. It became something very different. Um, and so uh, because it's, it's become a lot more about what, how do we decide what to do with money, um, which I think is extremely important. And I'm not not putting that down in any way, but it wasn't something that I was really prepared to, to mm. be involved in. I was much more interested in, in talking about how to actually um, create a cultural philanthropy around the idea of supporting people in earth regenerators mm. to, um, to establish themselves as catalysts and weavers in, in wherever they happen to be. Um, so yeah, uh, but at some, it seems like I've been part of just about everything at one point or another, mostly because I'm the just stage of what if. Yes, well that's the thing. I love I love to know what people are doing. I love to hear about. Um, and in the beginning, it was easier to do because there were fewer of us and there were fewer things happening. Now it's just impossible, and and it you know Mighty Networks has all these different things and uh, different people and so. Yeah. But at, at this point, I'm I'm part of the pledge community, um, and I am still part of. The, we're working on something called Vivero, which is a what I think is a really cool concept of just inviting everybody who's part of Earth Regenerators to make to 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 put some skin in the game. You know, a very small amount, but but if we have four thousand people around the world and everybody was willing to give. $10 a month for a year, we would have half a million dollars or something close to that, that, you know, think of what we could do with that. And mm. I don't know anybody in, in Earth Regenerators. I don't think I know anybody, period, really, who couldn't find a way to come up with $10 a month for a year. One Netflix subscription. <laughs> yes, exactly. A sandwich. Yeah. You know, that's so... Um, and and the, the idea that people aren't doing that is kind of perplexing to me because it seems like such a natural fit. We, we want these things to happen at seed money for, for and, and this is the seed money for, in my opinion, for turning traditional fundraising into regenerative fundraising because ideally once you have that kind of money to work with, you, you start giving it out to people who have projects and, and programs and things that they're working on. Th that will ideally begin to generate other uh, sources of, of revenue and, and, and other sources of resource, not just money, but, you know, engagement and um, so forth. So I really hope that that works out. I hope so too. So anyway, so I had this idea of doing this, which seemed it's a no brainer. It's not, there's nothing revolutionary or new about it. That's what we did with the uh, friends of wisdom Prairie. You know, I was telling you about working with, with them. Um, we did a little membership thing and people, you know, for 30 bucks a year, they became members. They got a little card, they got, you know, discounts on events and things like that. And that generated enough revenue every year for us to function. And, and so it, it just, it, it's a very simple concept, but what made it really cool is then Todd Youngblood came along with his app. And we could turn this concept of Vivero into something that people can download onto their cell phones as an mm. app. And not only would they be able to 
you know, give and, and be part of this community, but they could also then, uh, it, within the app, there are maps. It shows you where, where the various live projects are that are being funded. It, it will provide opportunities for people to be in contact with those projects. We're not inviting people to fund individual projects. We think that's not the way we want to go. But, you know, your, your small subscription will be part of funding all of these different things, and you can see where they are and know what's happening and, and stay, uh, you know, up, up, to, up to date on those things. And also the idea too is once that, that, that it's inspiring, you know, you, you are actually taking part in making these amazing things happen. And, and then by watching what other people are doing, maybe you get an idea of like, you know what, I can do something in my community, in my yard, in my whatever. So then have, once you're part of this Vivero community, that gives you the opportunity to then um, engage what uh, the um, project incubator, which is you know what is is where people come with their ideas and they get sort of mentored and coached so that their ideas can can develop and flourish, and then you become eligible to apply for some funds from the Earth Regenerators Fund to to start your own project, and then so the idea is that this would then be um, contagious inspiration. And uh, that we would be funding each other with everybody contributing a small amount. It's like that old, that um, story, you know, stone soup. You know, I don't have half a million dollars to give you to start some big project. But if everybody gave $10, it would have the same effect. So the idea that this isn't happening kind of perplexes me. And the mm. idea that... Honestly, there's a little resistance to this, and I I don't get that. But mm. um, that just means that those of us who do have some work to do to to, to tell the stories, and and that to me is is what's going to really bring all of this home. And and I love the idea that Joe's really been leaning into this idea of like in the pledge group and beyond. We need to be telling our stories because mm. inspiration is contagious, and so. Thank you for coming on here today. Hence, yes. All right. So I think the next what if Mm -hmm. that would be really interesting to talk about finally is the book. Uh, We have alluded to it a few times now. At what point was the book a what if? And at what point did you decide, I'm going to make this happen? Oh, um, yes. And, you know, it's, it's sad that I do not have a copy of my own book. I can't get it here. And it came out it got delivered the day after I left. Wow. So they're all sitting at my mom's house. She's given them away to people, which is fine because she helped support the project. But um, so uh, a a note to anyone who's hearing this, who happens to be thinking about coming to Barichara um, soon, uh, I would love to have a copy of the book and I would happily, you know, gift you a copy as well, if you'd be willing to bring me one. So anyway, um, so yeah, the book the book was so I was going to these campfires and I was talking to these talking to all these different people and I noticed, you know, we were having these same basic theme conversations. I was saying the same things. I was telling these stories over and over again and it was having it was having it was really having a profound effect on me and I and it was having an effect on other people because people were reaching out to me and saying, you know, let's let's talk more. And at the time I was um involved with doing some stuff with, with Benji and Ross and uh Daniel Sue, who are both you know, still 
very much involved in earth regenerators. And um, I, I just remember waking up on December 29th of 2021. No, 2020. I woke up December 29th in the morning. I remember the day. I marked it on the calendar. And I just, the book was in my head. I mean, I just knew exactly what it is that I wanted to, to do. I, I mean, I had the format. I, I could see it. And I thought, well, this is cool because this, this never really happened before. I've done a lot of writing. Um, but this, this kind of sense of having it just sort of downloaded had never really happened. I had, you know, chapter titles and everything. So I started talking to people about it and they're like, yeah. So anyway, I spent 16 weeks part-time and I wrote the first draft. And then I started... 16 weeks. 16 weeks. That's quick. I know. Well, it was all there. Um, the, the, and then, you know, I had to rewrite it quite a bit, you know, because um, there was... An, but I had people who helped me with that, who read it. And it's not just my story. There's lots of other... There's full of Earth Regenerator stories. I mean, there's a whole section that's written by... Actually, Benji, it was... We talked about something called aspirational fiction, where you write about or you tell about or you do creative projects around what you wish, the life you wish you had. With the ideas, the clearer you can see it, the easier it is to start beginning to put pieces together to, to make that happen. And so we, so um, Benji had written this beautiful story of this vision that he had for this community kitchen. And so I loved it so much that I said, no, I couldn't possibly do anything better. So I, so I put it in the book. And um, so it's definitely an earth regenerator's book, um, but I think it's, it's also, um, applicable to other people as well. So then it took me a while to, to do the rewriting and the editing. And then I was doing a lot of traveling and I didn't really know what to do with it. You know, I wasn't really sure. Um, but so I looked at, you know, traditional publishing and went, ah, no. Um, and so then Joe had his book that um, that he managed to get published through um, a lot of volunteer help from people. We have such amazing people in Earth Regenerators who have publishing experience, you know, like Pamela Woodland, who um, she, that's what she did. So she, uh, and, and uh, uh, Maya, who's an artist, and, and Claire, who's an artist, you know, these people. So um, they got together and they helped Joe put his book out. So that, that established something called Earth Regenerators Press. So that existed, and these same folks, you know, agreed to help me. And so um, Earth Regenerators Press now has two books in its catalog. And one of the things that, you know, Pamela and I have been talking about is if there are other people out there who are thinking that maybe they have a book, a story to tell that they would like to um, put out there in that format, you know, maybe we would do a little learning, little mini learning journey about, you know, that process and how it mm -hmm. works and kind of help people um, work, work through that. Because I would love to see Earth Regenerators Press have many titles in its catalog. Sounds like an exciting what if. Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, that, that that's one of the ways that we can continue to, to um, inspire people and encourage people to, to through their own process. Mm -hmm. So... So anyway, yeah, so then um, finally I was able to get all the pieces put together and 
now I'm a published author, so I could check check that off my bucket list. <laughs> and you know who it makes really happy? Really, it's my parents. My mom and my dad are both living. They're both in their 80s, and the idea that they have a they can hold a book in their hand that was written by their daughter, um, it's just made both of them deliriously happy. So there, there you, you go. go, guys. Yep. Just write a book. Makes everything okay, even if you lose your title of reverend. Exactly. <laughs> Beautiful. So. And what were those last few steps for the book process like? Because I think that if you have a big project like that, it really feels overwhelming once in a while, right? And keeping the overview of everything can get incredibly difficult. Were there moments for you like that? Why? Yeah. How did you continue? How did you get through well, that? Well, there's actually a, a chapter in the book where I talk about, you know, practical things. You know, when I talk about this idea of, you know, we're all living in this in-between space where there's the life that we're sort of forced to live because there aren't many alternatives and we need to eat and have roofs over our head. And many of us, you know, maybe have homes and children and, you know, things that, that responsibilities. We're not just free to go gallivanting off and we're not in a place where, you know, we're lucky enough to have a little pension to live on. So um, anyway, um, so so the idea of, of how do you live in that space and, and one of the ways that you do, at least for me, this is how I kind of navigate that is that, I see what I what I hope for, the life that I want, creating that life. I can't do it all at once, and I might never be able to do all of it, but I can, you know, take little steps every day. So, and and, and I have to say, you know, I went to college and um, probably learned some th some things, but really the most, the one thing I learned in college that I actually used and remembered is that there was um, took a course in time management and project management and. It, any big project is just a bunch of really small projects all strung together. So that's the trick, is to figure out how to turn the big thing into a series of small things. And even if you don't really know exactly what the future is going to look like, you can just do... Uh, this I learned from the Disney musical Frozen. When you, uh, Frozen 2. If you can't see the future, just do the next right thing. So, you know, you can you can get there. Um, Anne Lamont, who's one of my favorite authors, talks about the idea of driving in the fog, you know, you or driving in the dark. You know, you have headlights. You can't see where you're going, but you can see just far enough ahead. You know, if you keep keep following that, you'll eventually get to where you're going. So that's that's really just it is figuring out ways to to um, make it small. It also helps to have accountability, you know, find people who will kind of hold your feet to the fire make a declaration out loud to say i'm going to do this and then then invite people either i mean i actually paid someone for i had a i had a coach for a while in the beginning when i was not for the book writing but for when i was leaving the ministry and trying to figure out what to do with my life and i was so scared that i knew if i didn't if i wasn't answerable to somebody i was going to chicken out and run away so I found this woman who I knew, she wasn't a life coach, but she, she was actually a massage therapist who had a PhD in philosophy. Her name is Leora. She's still one of my, she's become one of my closest friends, but she was a person I knew had impeccable integrity who would be kind and compassionate, but hold me to what I asked for. And so I, I called her up. I didn't know her very well. I called her up and I said, would you be willing to be this person for me? And she said, sure. And I paid her for a while. And then we got to the point where she was then asking me to do the same thing. It became reciprocal. And then we've just become really good friends in the mm. in the years since. But point, there's a point. Um, you know, those are the things, you know, break things down, be willing to live in the unknown space, but keep 
you know, taken whatever step is the next right step. And then find people who will support you and not let you give up and not let you, you know, freak out when you don't know what you're doing or when it gets hard or, you know, the, all those things that I think are pretty common human experiences. So, How did you dare to just ask somebody to do that? Because it makes you vulnerable. It makes you accountable to somebody because now you've put it up out there and you're now responsible to this person basically there how, how what did that feel like for you beforehand and then how did you get yourself to actually do it and say okay i'm going to commit to this and i'm going to have this person watch me and hold me accountable i was just watching uh something on i think it was youtube um but this guy was talking about there are three there are there are only certain reasons why people change and one of them is that it's too painful not to Staying the same becomes so painful that you just, and, and that's kind of where I was. I just knew I couldn't stay where I was. So that gives you courage when you know you, you, you know, if, if, the, if, the, if the ship is burning, the ocean starts to look better and better. You know what I mean? You just, you have to. So that's kind of what, what happened to me. But um, so I think that uh, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't imagine I wanted this. I wanted to change. I wanted to make a change. And I knew from my own history that I needed to ask for help. It was also part of my process at that point of intentionally asking for help because that's something I was really bad at almost my whole life. So I made a concerted effort. And yes, it is really scary. And yes, you do have to be vulnerable. And yes, she could have easily said no. And then I would have kind of felt stupid. But really, what would I have lost? You know, I would just have to find someone else. And out of that, I actually, not only did I get to where I wanted to go, I made a really kick-ass friend in the process. So um, it, it that that's a happy story. That one turned out well. And not everything I've done has turned out well. You know, if, if people, someone asked me the other day, like, you know, oh, you've done these things and, and you know, you've managed to, to uh, you know, accomplish certain things. And I'm like, yeah, but what you're not seeing are all the things that didn't work out. And I've had some pretty spectacular, not great things happen too. So, um, but that's all part of it. And I'm really embracing, um, there's a guy called Ryan Holiday who's written a bunch of books about Stoic philosophy. And, and I realize that he may be putting a little bit of a spin on some things, but I like what he says And I, and I think there's a lot of truth to the idea that the obstacles are, are the opportunities. I believe that human beings, our role in the natural order of things, we're problem solvers. We are nature's problem solvers. And if we don't have good problems to solve, we create really crappy ones and, and get ourselves into all kinds of trouble. Is there anything else you would like to add about your journey? Is there anything else you would like to add about your journey? Well, I would, would like people to read it. Uh, and well, I, 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 it was written as a study uh, guide. I, I, I had envisioned that it would be book group kind of um, ac uh, concept where 
it would bring people together who were dealing with these same issues and that then they would provide support um, that people could re you can easily read it alone and there are um, at the end of every chapter there are what I call integration exercises things that you can do to sort of enhance your engagement with what's in there yeah I like it too and um, I like that and I had always envisioned that people would read it and maybe get together and share it with their friends and talk about these things people who maybe aren't in earth regenerators or don't have a support network who are trying to figure out you know how to be okay when you know let's say you're someone who is really growing into a collapse awareness and you're not surrounded by other people who who are supporting you in that and and knowing how lonely that is i thought well here's a companion piece um that people can can talk about so I, I'm hoping that something like that might happen, and that you know, I might. I'm not. A, I didn't write it to be an author. You know, I I don't want to do a lot. I don't want to be one of those eight bazillion people on, you know, you know on, on the internet trying to sell my course and all of that. That um, not that I wouldn't love to. Wouldn't love for that to happen organically, that people would want to engage with it, but that's not something that I feel really drawn to do. But I, I sort of believe that it'll find its audience. And I would love for there to be an opportunity to be in dialogue with people with each other and perhaps even, you know, with with me. So um, I'm open to what that might be, but not super motivated to make something happen. Um, and I've already kind of moved on in a way to the next thing I'm really interested in uh, seeing if there's uh, uh, a book, another another download from from the universe of, of what to say because I'm really sort of interested because of where I am in my own life about elderhood and what that means and how in our culture we don't really know how to do that and you know I look at the way the elders. I've spent a lot of time around older people because of my work in chaplaincy and my work in, in ministry. So um, th what I see uh, as life options for older people, what are you know what happens to to us uh, as we age? I think we could do a whole lot more with that time in our lives if we if we see it as a time to be free to participate in supporting things that are coming as opposed to continuing on being consumers um, at, a, I think, an even increasing rate. Um, so anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of interested in exploring that uh, in uh, maybe a written format. So I'm ready to kind of mentally move on to some other things. So. Mentally move on to some well, thank you for all of the work Beautiful. you've done on that first book. Well, thank you for very all of the work you've done on that first book. Very curious to see what the second one would be like, even though I suppose I'm not really, really interested like, in elders. But my thought is, is this is, I think you make an excellent soon. point, is we sh we're all elders in progress from the moment we're born. 
wouldn't that be cool to be having an awareness of that? I mean, we, we treat aging like a moral failure. Um, wouldn't it be wonderful to, have, to, to look forward to that as, you know, a time in life to celebrate the fact that we've gotten through all of this and now we, we're keepers of the wisdom and we're keepers of, um, you know, the, the, the um, abilities to help nurture the next generations. Uh, so my thought is... We're all elders in so progress, and we're just and and I think who we are when we get older starts long before we get there. And you know, uh, someday I'll tell you the story of my hundred and four-year-old friend who had who was still working it. I mean, she was still she had an amazing life at one hundred and four. She couldn't see, she couldn't hear, she couldn't walk. She used to tell me the worst part of being being one hundred and four is my sons are such old men. They were in their 80s, you know, and, and uh, what a trip that would be to, you know, have your children be old. Um, although my kids are in their 30s, so I'm starting to kind of get a feel for that. But anyway, um, but yeah, the, the, the idea that it would be something to celebrate and get excited about and work towards your whole life. Me too. Any other what ifs? Any other projects? Any other thoughts that well, you're looking forward to? I'm looking in the forward future. to being able to be well, conversational in Spanish. That is um, really important to me. I'm looking forward to really, you know, there's a difference between staying somewhere and living somewhere. And I'm, I'm looking forward to having an experience of really living here and um, seeing what that feels like. And really looking forward to continuing to support, I think, these, these structures and relationships that are wanting to form um, around people who, who get what's happening in the world and get what needs to happen for humanity to get its crap together and, and, and have a chance of... Not just survival, but to be better, not just keep not replicating just survival, the same civilization better. building process, empire building process, um, and just uh, being part of that in some meaningful, creative, life-giving way, generative way, yeah, I think is, 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 but the specifics of that, I'm trying not to be too attached to any particular outcome, uh, because I think that a part of what will be successful about this is is being open and um, letting things sort of flow a little bit rather than pushing and shoving, which is kind of comes out of the culture that we are from. So I don't know if that's a particularly satisfying answer. I just I feel hopeful that there are going to be some really cool things to write about and make videos of and share with the world and be in conversation. And I know that I'm also going to have lots and lots of fascinating, stoic-inspiring problems, and I'm going to be happy about that. So, and I'm going to be happy about that. Beautiful. Well, well, thank you, Rachel, for telling us about your path until here. And it was really nice to hear just another person talking about how they got into regeneration, and at least I learned a lot from it talking to you today. I hope other people will too. Is there anything more explicit that you would 
suggest to somebody that is starting into this space, um, be they already in Earth for Generators or just have heard about the idea of, okay, maybe we can actually regenerate all of the ecosystems around us. Maybe we can regenerate the world. Um, anything, I don't know, a book, a video, a documentary, whatever, anything that, or just a piece of advice. Well, I think it would, it, I always recommend like that people read well, Joe's book, The Design Pathway for Regenerating Earth. I think that was, a, that was a game changer for me. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm, um, you know, I think we all come to this from different directions and we all kind of yeah, bring different things. So I don't know that I have any one um, or kind of go to beyond that. But I, I think I would stress the idea that the change, you got to be the change you want to see. I know that's a little trite, and, and, but it's not going to happen through technology. It's not going to happen by sitting behind a desk. It's not going to happen by replicating the same patterns we've always known. The real, if we really want to change what's on the outside, we have to be willing to take a very hard uh, collective look at, at, at who we are on the inside and be willing to release everything and uh, everything. And, that's uh, incredibly hard. And I don't think I realized how hard it is until I got to the point where I was really letting go of things that are core. And and here's the thing, it's like an onion, you know. This, I, I kind of feel like, okay, I've managed to, to let go of this and move into this space. Well, now that now I'm seeing new things that are um, needing to be released. So I think that that's what I would just say to people is that, that, that I really believe it starts with our willingness to recognize our culpability, the relationship between where we are and how we have lived, that each of us is culpable in our own way. And that's hard. It's hard to get there. It's so much easier to blame or to you know, think that there are going to be solutions that come out of patterns and structures and institutions that already exist. And I don't think that's true. I think that we have to let it all go. It doesn't mean that some things can't be retained. I think we have to really take a look at sustainability. You know, For example, technology. One of the one of the um, paradoxes of all of this is that I wouldn't be here today were it not for the Internet. And the Internet wouldn't be here today were it not for all the technology and all the industry and all the stuff that's actually contributing to, to our problem. So it's, it's an interesting paradox. And, and all of these things that we're talking about trying to do, if, if, if collapse gets to the point where, you know, the plug is pulled on all of that, we be then, you know, kind of go back to the Stone Age in a way. And, and what is, it's hard, I can't even picture what that is. So I think there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of paradox. Paradox and all of this, of but I also know that paradox, paradox always seems to be kind of where all the true wisdom and of of humanity, and we always end up in that place where two opposing things are kind of hooked together. So that's that's it. Nice. Embrace the paradox. Nice. Embrace the paradox. Rachel, Rachel, is there anything else that we didn't get to talk about?
that you think should really be said before we finish? No, I feel like I've talked a very, very lot. No, I so uh, I guess maybe I would just want to thank lot. anybody who's so, uh, actually listened to all of this. And uh, please know that um, this, whatever I'm saying, um, sending it out to you all with with love and hope and good wishes. And um, if anybody has specific questions, I am reachable. So please feel free to, um, through Earth Regenerators, um, feel free to reach out. And I'm happy to talk to anybody who's thinking about making a change in their life or, you know, feeling a little isolated. Amazing. This has been super fun. Amazing. Thank you, Jacob, for doing uh, this. For I'm really excited. Thank we you, talked Jacob, about doing this for a long really time, excited. and I'm just really glad that someone finally took it on and decided to make it their own. So thanks. All right, guys, we'll see you in the next episode. Super cool. All right, guys, we'll see you in the next episode. Ciao, ciao. Until then, let's regenerate the earth. This podcast is a decentralized platform for the regenerative community. Anybody on Earth Regenerators can propose or record their own episode. So if you're already on Earth Regenerators, contact Jacob Seidler if you have an idea for a future interview or audio essay. And if you're not on there yet, come and join us for regular learning journeys on the pathway to regeneration, inspiration from the many regenerative projects reporting there, and a wonderful community woven around mutual support. Just enter Earth Regenerators into your search engine and find a website or follow the link in the description. Let's regenerate the Earth.